Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. The COVID-19 pandemic wasn't just a public health crisis. It also pushed the global economy into the sharpest downturn since the Great Depression. We're going to begin with the economic consequences of this escalating outbreak. It's put Wall Street into that steep slide and it's threatening main streets across the country now from big companies to small mom and pop shops. Schools work, even iconic institutions like Broadway and Disney World are shut down. To limit the fallout, governments open the fiscal floodgates. We begin with breaking news at this hour. The U.S. is now headed toward a wartime footing in the fight against the pandemic. It's record size. It was with record speed that Congress passed this massive legislation. European leaders have sealed a deal on an unprecedented 750 billion euro coronavirus recovery fund. Though the pandemic isn't over, the global economy is on the road to recovery. Yet some are pushing for even more spending. President Biden's first federal budget proposal looks to transform the economy from transportation to education, all the while confronting climate change. That has led others to sound the alarm about mounting debt. Isn't there some kind of ramification to so much borrowed money? While the debt debate seems particularly urgent today, it's far from new. What can history teach us about the purpose, power, and peril of public debt? Barry. Hi. Here to help us answer this question is Barry Eichengreen. How are you too? Good. How are you doing? All's well here. Barry is a professor of economics and political science at the University of California at Berkeley. He's the author most recently of In Defense of Public Debt. This one is audio only. Is that correct? Barry joins us from his home in California. Barry, public debt is an old concept, so I want to start at the beginning. Where do you see the first instances of public borrowing? My origin story begins probably with the Greek and Roman empires. So Aristotle wrote about the anesis of Syracuse forcing loans on uh, the citizenry. And then you see later instances where various Greek cities, in order to fight uh, enemies, uh, borrow from individual investors, borrow from religious foundations, which are managing estates and therefore have a lot of assets. So sometime around 400 BC. So it's 400 BC. What does public borrowing actually look like? So if you go to the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, England, you can see a slab that records the loans that were extended by the Temple of the Delians on the island of Delos around this time. And they record how much the temple, the religious foundation, lent to, I think, 13 Greek city-states borrowers. Uh, and how those loans lapsed into default, how, how the interest and principal were not promptly repaid. If you're victorious in your military campaign, you're better able to repay than if you're not. So uh, this is also a reminder that uh, lending to states is fraught, that there's no guarantee that you'll be repaid. You mentioned military campaigns. A thousand years later, sovereign borrowing has really taken off. 
And you note in your new book that Europe led the way, mainly because there were so many wars on the continent. How did all this borrowing spur the development of the nation state? So the first part of the book is self-consciously Eurocentric because the development of modern markets and sovereign debt is a European phenomenon. Europe in the early modern period was divided into literally hundreds of city-states and territorial states with porous borders and hostile sovereigns just on the other side. So a sovereign who can not defend the borders of his territory is not going to remain on the throne for long, uh, both because uh, he's apt to be overthrown by hostile invaders who want to seize the crown jewels and and, uh, the royal treasury, but also because the residents, the citizenry uh, will not be protected from those hostile invaders and, and will not support the regime. So the ability to secure the borders of the princely kingdom uh, of the state is really integral to the legitimacy of the realm. And the way early sovereigns did that typically was by hiring mercenaries. And you've got to pay them or they're not going to work for you. So uh, you've got to mobilize a lot of financial resources in short order. It's hard to do that by taxing commerce or imports or whatever. You raise a lot of financial resources in short order by borrowing. Borrowing then helps strengthen sovereigns, but public debt can also weaken states. An example that you give in your book is Egypt in the late 1800s. And there, the government defaulted amid riots and protests. Eventually, the British invaded and occupied the country with the goal of restoring the state's solvency. What does this experience tell us about the risks public debt poses to a state? So that experience is a reminder that uh, states and sovereigns borrow for good reasons, but also for bad reasons. So the Egyptian case is famous or infamous in the historical literature in that the head of state, the Khedive, borrowed to hire ballet dancers to entertain the court. And when you borrow for those kind of unproductive purposes, the likelihood that you'll be able to repay promptly is less. And in that instance, default on those Egyptian debts led to British bombardment of of Alexandria and eventually political seizure of Egypt. So clearly the record of sovereign borrowing and lending is mixed. Uh, We have quite a discussion in the book about uh, gunboat diplomacy and whether uh, debt problems provide a pretext for gunboat diplomacy desired on other grounds, were the British really interested in control of the Suez Canal? And uh, the Egyptian state's debt problems provided a a pretext to seize control. That would tend to be my view, although, and, and, and similarly of the United States and its interventions on behalf of creditors, on behalf of bondholders in Cuba, in Central America, uh, in Venezuela, I think it, it it 
tended to be geopolitical considerations that led to this kind of intervention that could provide a pretext. And the fact that borrowing governments opened themselves up to this danger by overborrowing and not being able to repay was not always something that they took heed of. These risks didn't stop governments from borrowing, though. Quite the opposite. But that doesn't mean they were making the kinds of unproductive investments seen in 19th century Egypt. From ports and roads to sewage systems and urban lighting, public investment in infrastructure laid the groundwork for modern economic growth. Debt financed public spending also helped countries cope with economic downturns. During the Great Depression, the U.S. government spent big on social programs and cash transfers. I shall ask Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. Broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal resulted in what was one of the biggest ever debt expansions during peacetime. By 1945, the debt-to-GDP ratio in the U.S. hit a record high of 113 percent. In Barry's view, these changes in how states used public debt had a lot to do with popular pressure. So another aspect of the legitimacy of the modern state is ability to protect citizens from risks that they can't protect themselves from. We talk about the social insurance state. So to protect individuals from unemployment that they experience in a recession through no fault of their own. The state develops unemployment insurance and and welfare and so forth. It's not a coincidence that we see these programs develop starting in the 1930s, a severe downturn that illustrates the need for them and that underscores the legitimacy of the state undertaking these functions. And it's not a surprise that we see these developments after the franchise has been broadened, after who can vote has been expanded as a result of ongoing trends, but heavily as a result of World War I, that you can't send men off to fight in the trenches and not give them the vote when they come back. So there is popular pressure for the expansion of things like unemployment insurance and old age pensions and the like shortly thereafter. So you see the early development of the social insurance state in the 1920s and especially in in the hard economic times of the 1930s. And then you really see it after World War II. But in some ways, public debt was also becoming less risky. Um, You point out in your book, even though public debt levels soared after the Great Depression and World War II, a lot of countries were able to reduce their debt-to-GDP ratios fairly quickly. How did new post-war institutions help make this possible? I think probably the most important aspect of that post-World War II financial system was that financial markets and institutions were very heavily regulated. Number one, interest rates were relatively low after World War II, courtesy of strict financial regulation, which, for example, capped the interest rates that banks could offer depositors on their bank accounts. And that pushed savers into buying things like government bonds, keeping the yield or the interest cost governments paid 
lockdown, and importantly, fast economic growth. So the French talk about the 30 glorious years after World War II, when the economy grew at unprecedented rates. So it really was a combination of factors, low interest rates, high economic growth rates, and fiscal discipline, if you will, that enabled countries to deal with that very heavy inheritance uh, of debt bequeathed by World War II. That, of course, points to the implicit question of can they do it again? These factors depended partly on the creation of international financial institutions after World War II. But those institutions don't exactly have a flawless record in dealing with sovereign debt. Starting in the mid-1950s, the World Bank played a major role in financing infrastructure projects in developing countries. International private creditors also lent huge sums for industrialization. In Latin America, this wouldn't end well. I told them a very old Mexican expression. We owe you money, I recognize it, but I don't have any money to pay you back. As finance minister in 1982, Jesus Silva Herzog Flores broke the news to the world that Mexico would hold repayment of its debt, triggering a continent-wide crisis. It was a crisis which taxed the nerves of the World Bank, the IMF and the United States Federal Reserve. Much of the region was plunged into a deep recession. The International Monetary Fund stepped in to bail out countries. But there were strings attached. Austerity brought industrialization to a standstill. Living standards fell and social fractures deepened. This experience highlighted some of the added risks developing economy borrowers face and the ways lenders can make things worse. Developing countries and emerging markets run up against debt constraints. They run into the wall more quickly than advanced economies because they have less capacity to raise tax revenues and, and, and service their debts because they often have to borrow in dollars rather than in their own currency. So their own central banks can't help with the debt management problem like advanced country central banks have been doing for the last few years. So when Mexico, having borrowed dollars in the 1970s, recall, this was the period of petrodollar recycling when Saudi Arabia was uh, earning lots of dollars, courtesy uh, of suddenly higher oil prices. The government turned around and deposited this money in banks in New York, and banks in New York looked for a place to put it to work. And they put it to work in Mexico, despite uh, the existence uh, of economic problems there. When Mexico encounters those problems in, in 1982 and says, sorry, we can't repay what we've borrowed. The IMF, with encouragement from the US government, comes in, extends Mexico a bridge loan, but doesn't put pressure on the banks to offer concessions, to write down the value of those loans, or agree to take 50 cents on the dollar on the grounds that half a loaf is better than none. And therefore, uh, the crisis drags on. Mexico, if anything, becomes more heavily indebted because now it owes money to the IMF in addition to, to still owing money to the banks. So it took really until 1989, seven plus years later, 
for a U.S. Treasury Secretary, Nicholas Brady, to come along uh, and encourage the banks to write down their loans, put in place with help from the World Bank and the IMF, a mechanism for those defaulted bank loans to be converted into bonds at 50 cents on the dollar. That works. And that bequeaths what we have today, which is an international bond market where countries that want to borrow don't borrow from Citibank in New York like they did in the 1970s, but they borrow instead on the bond market. So Barry, fears of excessive government spending aren't limited to the developing world. We saw after the 2008 global financial crisis, the debate over how much spending is too much. You say the crisis shifted the conversation on debt. How? Well, I think we saw in the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, and again during the COVID emergency and lockdown, the value of public debt. So our book is entitled In Defense of Public Debt. And the argument is that a global financial crisis or a global pandemic is the equivalent of war in the sense that uh, it more than justifies government doing whatever it takes to meet the immediate emergency in 2008-2009 to prevent the financial system from collapsing and to prevent an even more serious recession than we experienced at that time. So I think the conversation was shifted by that observation, by that realization, and then by the premature turn back to austerity. People said, well, the financial crisis in 2009 uh, was an emergency, but come 2010, it's over. So we can go back to business as usual by raising taxes, cutting spending, and balancing budgets. But if you do that too quickly, you plunge the economy back into recession. Europe learned this lesson the hard way. The global financial crisis morphed into a sovereign debt crisis in some Eurozone countries especially Greece. Overseas now to Greece, a country on the brink of collapse. Banks shuttered, ATMs running out of cash. Endless lines at ATMs with withdrawals limited to just $67. The Greek government says it doesn't necessarily want a bailout, but it may have no choice. Greece was given a bailout, but like the ones Latin American countries got in the 1980s, it was conditioned on harsh austerity measures. The results were not pretty. The recovery stalled and Greece fell behind on its debt repayments. Ultimately, the country would need two more bailouts, unprecedented debt restructuring, and significant revisions to its borrowing terms. We're getting some incredible pictures from Greece today where uh, the protests have begun in earnest. In fact, we're seeing flames and fire started. While all this was happening, Greeks weren't happy. So they voted in leaders whom they thought would defend their interests. 40-year-old Alexis Tsipras is the new prime minister of Greece. The Greeks delivered an historic win to the leftist Syriza party with a surprisingly large share of the vote. Analysts say it was a clear rejection of the previous government's austerity policies. Austerity is blamed for the rise of anti-establishment parties elsewhere, too. A new anti-austerity party is also gaining popularity in Spain, Europe's fifth largest economy. On January 31st, as many as 150,000 people rallied in Madrid to show support for the Podemos party. That translates into, we can. There's no doubt that debt management has an impact on politics. 
But according to Barry, the opposite is also true. As you say, in a highly polarized democratic setting, there can be a temptation for one political faction to borrow in order to finance spending on its preferred programs before the next election when political control is turned over to uh, another political faction with very different preferences. So we see in the history, certainly in the history of the United States, but more broadly, a correlation between the extent of political polarization on the one hand and debt accumulation to finance current spending on the other. And again, I think this is something that we are seeing in the United States at the moment. The Democrats trying to get their infrastructure package and their social infrastructure package through the Congress, if necessary, uh, with additional borrowing before the midterm elections when they may lose the capacity to do that. As Barry notes, the politicization of public spending has been on stark display lately. And yet there are some lessons about public debt that seem to have been widely internalized. When the COVID-19 crisis erupted, policymakers largely agreed that fiscal spending was crucial. In the midst of this pandemic, there are millions of people out of work, unable to pay their rent or their mortgage. The bottom line is the job report shows we need to provide more immediate relief for working families and businesses now. To all those at home right now, anxious about the days ahead, I say this, you will not face this alone. Governments worldwide announced $10 trillion in stimulus spending in just the first two months of the crisis. That's more than three times the amount governments spend after the 2008 crisis. Soon after, the world's largest economies also launched a plan to suspend the debt service payments of poor countries. G20 finance ministers have agreed to suspend debt service payments for 77 low-income countries. The World Bank estimates that highly indebted countries owe nearly $14 billion in 2020. Barry, I want to dive deeper into the pandemic response. The scale of fiscal spending was unprecedented. To what extent have governments internalized the lessons of the 2008 crisis? I think that the fact that there was not an inflationary explosion after the fiscal response to the global financial crisis in 2008-2009 was one factor that informed the decisions of governments starting in 2020. Back then, people warned, you can't respond to this crisis in 2008-2009 with all this deficit spending because you will only foment inflation. And it didn't happen. So I think that's why governments felt freer to turn to deficit spending big time starting in 2020. The other uh, point is that there were worries in 2008, 2009 about what economists call moral hazard, that if government uh, spends more to bail out the banks, the banks will only engage in more risky behavior going forward. And by solving this financial crisis, you will only set the stage for future financial crises. COVID-19 was not something that we brought upon ourselves. So the danger of moral hazard that by addressing this emergency, we will only set the stage for another novel coronavirus didn't apply. So I think the differences between 
that crisis in 2008-2009. And this one were also important for informing what governments have done for the last couple of years. Still, resistance to debt finance spending is growing. As you mentioned earlier, the Biden administration is struggling to get its spending proposals through Congress, even after they've been whittled down substantially. Do you think we'll see a return to austerity or something like it? There is a debate about whether uh, attitudes toward the role of government, that's fundamentally what we're talking about, and the role of debt, debt finance in enabling that more expansive role for government, there's a debate about whether this is a a sea change and we're moving from the neoliberal order that started with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s to a new New Deal order under Biden, or whether once COVID-19 is in the rear view mirror, we will go back to the neoliberal order. My, My own view is that there has been a change in American society in the direction of uh, recognition of the need for government to do more on the social spending side and the climate change side. But there has not been such a change in the Congress because of the way the Electoral College works. Smaller states are disproportionately represented because of the way congressional district lines are drawn, gerrymandering, In other words, so I think there is likely to be something of a disconnect between public opinion on the one hand and congressional action on the other. And for the moment, it is the congressional action that decides how much government spends and how indebted it becomes. Barry, I want to look now at how countries are going to manage all the public debt they've taken on during the pandemic. A little while earlier, we discussed how Europe and the United States had a relatively easy time paying down their debts after World War II. Will that be the case this time? There, I think the picture is a bit troubling. There is that political polarization, which will make running persistent budget surpluses difficult. There is the fact that there are headwinds to economic growth less favorable demographics than we had after World War II. The fact that we don't obviously have a backlog of of technologies to take off the shelf, like we did after a decade and a half of depression and war when there had been relatively little private investment, and the possibility that interest rates, which have been trending downward for several decades may turn around and begin to trend upward. So that does worry me about future prospects. I think it was exactly right for governments to do whatever it takes in response to the pandemic, even at the cost of doubling their debt loads relative to GDP. But now I think it's incumbent on them to restore that capacity to borrow because there'll be another emergency of some kind in the future, another pandemic, a climate-related emergency, a geopolitical emergency. So I think consolidating that debt inheritance is important and it ain't gonna be easy. Barry, thank you. You're most welcome.
That was Barry Eichengreen, a professor of economics and political science at Berkeley and the author of In Defense of Public Debt. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrasli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.